Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley, and it is my joy to have Dr. John Dyer back on the broadcast. Dr. Dyer is the Vice President for Educational Technology, as well as a Professor of Theology and Sociology at Dallas, the Logical Seminary, my alma mater as well. He's also a technology creator for 20 plus years and used Facebook, Google, Apple, Anheuser-Busch, GoCours, the Department of Defense, the Digital Bible Society, and his open source code is used on 40 plus percent of all websites. That's a big one. Dr. Dyer writes and speaks on technology, faith, education for a number of publications, and I won't go any further than that. We're talking about two books today. Briefly, one of them is a revision called From the Garden to the City. And then this book we're really most interesting today is called People of the Screen, Mm -hmm. which is your newest book. Correct, John? That's right. Thanks for coming back on the broadcast, brother. Oh, good to be here. I'm very, very privileged you would do this. Let's start, first of all, I went through the timeline at the end of one of your books, I forget, I thought CD Word Project was kind of the beginning Bible software, mm. but it wasn't, yeah. was it? Yeah, that's a good point. So CD Word's one of these things happening in the, in the 80s, but there were things before that, or earlier in the 80s, and then even back into the 60s and 70s, yeah. Because when I was at Dallas, I, it was after I'd finished my THM, and I remember Don Johnson was the one that started the CD Word Project. Mm. He had noticed a pastor with all his books on the table. And he said, it'd be nice if that was all on the computer. Mm. And as I understand it, that kind of began the genesis. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, Bob Pritchard purchased CD Word from Dallas, right? And turned it That's into right. Logos or what is known today as Faith Life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boy, it's come a long way. So from a coding and open source background, let's take a mm. step back. Did you ever envision, I mean, this is without question, your, your wiring and your, your training, mm-hmm. did you ever envision we'd be where we are right now with technology and particularly as a Christian is consuming Bible software and screens and mm-hmm. so forth? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I grew up in the sort of eighties, nineties, so I've always had a computer, you know, it's just part of life and it got more connected and got smaller, but it's just always been part of life. And I think about my own kids, you know, they've never channel surfed in their life. You know, they've, they've never turned on the TV and just kind of flipped around. They've just always had streaming shows where they can pick what they want to watch. So I think that in some ways you're always shaped by where you grew up and what you saw and what was normal to you. I think, you know, you grew up in the 80s watching uh, futuristic things and people have laser swords. We don't have those, but we have a lot of the other stuff. So I'm not entirely surprised, um, but there have been some fun turns along the way. Your subtitle of your book, in fact, Hannah and I read it twice and went, this is interesting how evangelicals created the digital Bible and how it shapes their reading of scripture. The first interview you and I did was on an article, if I remember correctly, and it was a little test you did between men and women. Is that right? Mm. And how they use Mm -hmm. devices. Uh, Give Mm. our folks a little update on that quickly on what that was about. Yeah. So this overall book, it's called People of the Screen. And then the subtitle, like you mentioned, is Evangelicals Creating Digital Bible Software. And so as I was just investigating digital Bibles in general and who's making them and how do they affect us and all of those things. Um, What I found was that most of the software developers since the 80s have been evangelicals really taking over that market from desktop software to, you know, what's on our phones to websites, all that kind of stuff. 
And then as part of that was what we talked about before, which was going into a couple different churches and asking them to, asking, you know, half of a group to read in print and half to read on their phones and just seeing, you know, how did they comprehend? What did they see in the text? And yeah, there were some differences between men and women and a little bit in age groups, but there was interesting differences in what they saw and didn't see depending on if they were on screen or in print. And we can talk through those details. What do you think, and it's sidebar, but neuroplasticity, neuroscience, what we know, if you're familiar with NILD, National Institute for Learning Disabilities, and what they have with tactile interaction with reading and writing and notes, I'm sure you've done some thinking versus mm-hmm. completely digital and keys versus a pen and a pad. and. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're all getting at is that we would say God's word never changes. It's it's eternal, it's unchanging, it's an error, and it's, it's authoritative for us. But it does seem like the medium that we use to read it shapes what we see and don't see and then shapes us. And so I think as we read on screens, it's a, it's a different experience. And there's all kinds of data out there that would say the early, big, fat, ugly screens, you know, that were hard to read, people had a lot of trouble with the comprehension. As screens have gotten smaller and lighter and thinner and more iPad-like, people are doing better at the comprehension part of it. But it's more than just that, I think, now, because you have you know, a device that's connected, so there may be uh, distractions coming in at the same time. But also, like you mentioned, um, one of the things that people still don't do really well is because of that, that tactile feeling of turning a page. It seems like when we quiz people on things that they're less likely to be able to put things in order when they read on a screen. Because that act of moving and turning the page helps you see what's before and after, whereas on screen, you kind of, kind of all is a jumble after a little bit. Maybe further than you've studied, but I'm sure you you looked into it, the lumens and the blue light, allegedly, and mm. how this affects us. Yeah, sure. So I think now you see most of your devices will change in some way toward, toward night so that it's not that wake-up light. So some of us buy wake-up lights so that in the morning when it's really dark, we get something that's like sunlight. And essentially, that's what we've been doing to ourselves, but at night uh, for a long time. So we would turn on these things that are really bright right in front of our face, and it wakes our body up. So if we do a bunch of email or something like that right at the end of the day, then that's not really great for us. Now, interestingly, if you have a screen that's far away, like like a TV, and it's something passive, like watching a show, that doesn't affect us as much. But if it's something up close to us that's very bright, and it has anxiety-producing things like social media or email, then those are more likely to wake us up and make it hard for us to sleep. Again, we're off topic here, but a friend of mine (laughs) who's a dentist was telling me that people that bite their fingernails, they have something in their mouth, they chase a lot. He Hmm. said that was an endorphin hit. Hmm. He said the reason people bite their nails, bite their cuticles, and then he said it's the same thing as Instagram. It's an endorphin Mm. hit. Have you heard any of this? Not not about the mouth stuff. No, I'm not, I'm not well, a dentist. But so the no. point was social media, yeah. you talked about anxiety creating distractions. Mm-hmm. And he said that's the reason that so much of this is because it creates endorphins. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I never knew people bit their fingernails for an endorphin hit. Let's talk about your book. You talk about a new kind of technology company. And again, I'm intrigued by the title. Evangelicals were the ones who saw benefit in computer-aided Bible study, not Mm. other groups. That's kind of telling. Yeah. Yeah. So if we go back, you know, to the 50s, 60s, 70s, these early experiments, there were a lot of more scholars who had access to computers at universities and things like that. This is before there was personal computers at home. 
They did a few experiments with Greek and Hebrew to try to figure out some things and compare manuscripts. They also used it to generate concordances. So someone like, if you've ever used a Strong's number for to look up a Greek or Hebrew, you know, Strong just did that all by hand a long time ago, and it took him forever. But generating a, a concordance to a Bible with a computer, that was a big step. So those things were happening somewhat, you know, some of those were evangelical, some of them weren't, some were just scholars, some were business people trying to sell things. But once you get to the 80s and you start to have those first personal computers, you know, the old Apples and the IBM clones and all that sort of stuff, I think you started to see some people that were believers that were in technology go, man, I could put these two things together power. and it would be awesome. And I think there's a thing in a technologist like me Sometimes you just want to make stuff and you just want to make stuff because you can, and you just want to see if it'll work. And there's a a joy and a delight. And I think that, I think it's something that God, I think, wants us to do. I think even from Genesis one and two, you see him saying, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and go have dominion over it. And part of that I think is going to be using and making technology. So there's that drive. And I think every Christian developer who's ever thought about it would go, I bet I could make Bible software. And so there's some folks in that early 80s timeframe that were doing some great experiment. There was a lot of shareware out there, which was a kind of software that you would post online that you could use and then pay for afterward if you liked it. There was some free stuff, but the first commercial Bible software comes in 1982. And that's where you you start to see ads showing up in computer magazines and all that kind of stuff. And, and I remember early on when I was writing my dissertation project for my D-men, they were on the fulcrum of going from, you know, we were typing it out on a word processor from inline uh, in notes. I think they were changing it from footnotes. And I had already done my whole paper and I begged for mercy. They sent us out a CD that had the built-in style sheets like the APA manual mm-hmm. or whatever it was. Mm-hmm and the Dallas Seminary version of how you footnoted and cited. Mm. And I said, please, I've done this now for so long, I can't go back and re-enter the whole thing. And they grandfathered me. But to think of it now, completely automated, that Mm. when you type in that citation, it automatically populates it and checks it against an EPUB or something to pull in the right citation. It's crazy where this has gone. Mm. And I'm reading through some of these things going, was there any value of going to a card catalog mm-hmm. illustratively back to a pen and paper versus what you and I can do in a nanosecond quicker than our t- our keystrokes? Are we losing? Yeah, I mean this this is the perennial question we have about technology. You know, sometimes it's framed as make something bad happen, does it make something good happen? What's the over under? And what what I usually try to do, and I'm just going to take a step back from answering your direct question just as a big picture on technology. Sometimes the way I go I often will ask audiences, do you think technology is good, bad, or neutral? And every single time, maybe 5% will say good, 5% will say bad, and 90% will say neutral. Every single time. And you know, they're going, hey, all that really matters is that you use it for good and not for bad. And really, that, that's kind of how I grew up thinking is that I wanted to use technology for the glory of God and avoid all the bad stuff. What I didn't realize is that even when I'm using it for good things, there's still some formative impact on me. And the example I always give is a shovel, you know, that you're going to, you're going to dig a hole, you're going to change the world. But after you dig for a while, you know, your hands get blisters and those turn into calluses. And it really doesn't matter if you're building a church or you're ax murdering somebody and putting their body in the ground. Either way, the morality of the situation doesn't change whether or not that tool shapes you as you're using it. So this is true of all the things. So I think what we're trying to do is say, let's just be attentive to those things. Let's think about how they're shaping us as we do it. 
let's try to mitigate some of those effects. The challenge is that today's technology is going so much faster and it's not just shaping our hands, but you know, kind of into our minds and souls. And, and that's a little bit harder to detect and see. And it's harder to resist when we find out something's not particularly awesome. So when you come back to this, has it made things better or worse? I, I definitely think that there's some really powerful things that we can do with technology, like you mentioned, of making citations faster. I think the question is, do we use that time well? You know, if, if we saved a bunch of time with this, yeah. what do we fill it with? And sometimes we fill it with kind of mindless things that aren't really that helpful. And sometimes all the predictions, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. All the predictions that we would suddenly, uh, all these devices would make our lives trouble-free. That's not really how it's turned out. I've been an early adopter with Logos. And interestingly, I remember trying to show people what it could do for you. And I said, I think it was Mo Proctor who came up with it. It's a library assistant. You know, mm. you, instead of going to the library and pulling out bag and Liddell Scott and whatever, and if you've ever used Kittle in the old days, I still use Kittle, you know, a Logos, obviously, but I had the 10 volume set on my accessible shelf as a pastor. And to go to the last volume index and look up Galatians 5.22 and mm. chase that around in nine other volumes of Kittle, mm. you could easily spend hour and a half just looking up, is this reference worth reading <laughs> in this mm. particular volume? And then taking notes physically on a piece of paper or even on a word processor. Boy, right click and I'm in Logos, I'm in Liddell Scott, I mean, in a Kittle, Liddell Scott, BDB bag, whatever I want, and Lexum in seconds. Mm -hmm. That's a good use of time for mm -hmm. my worldview. I don't think I've lost anything neurosynaptically by chasing those books around. That said, the retention is still con is one of the issues I don't know we can ever measure because there's, there's too many floating facts. Look at something, I read it. Some things I remember, other things, I just have a hard time recalling mm. them. You're young, you probably remember everything you read. <laughs> but you know, I think there is a, f a question about when we're doing education, because that's really what we're talking about here is, what do we want the outcome to be? You know, do we want someone just be able to recall facts? Do you, we want someone to be able to um, say when it comes to math? You know, do we want them to be able to do that math raw on a piece of paper, or do we want them to understand it well enough that they can use a calculator? So we're trying to think what's that outcome on the other end. And I think when it comes to the Christian life, there's always this concern that now we have access to everything, but is it is it actually forming us? Is it shaping and changing us in the ways that we want to be? So we want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, right? We want the Holy Spirit to do that. And, you know, just having access to the Bible doesn't do that. You know, I think there's something that happens when we memorize and when we meditate, and we can't meditate without memorizing, right? So being able to look up all the stuff is great, but we also want to decide, you know, are there other places where we want to do something kind of old school that will be formative for us? So it's the reason why we exercise. You know, we can get anywhere on a vehicle at any time, but we do exercise, we run or we walk or whatever it is that we do, not because we actually want to lift a weight, but because we want to shape our body in a particular way. And so we want to be thinking about how do we want to shape our, our minds and our souls with the tools that we use. You made a point and triggered my mind on something the information is a lot more accessible, like in my Logos library, which is, I don't know why I still buy books, you know, I don't need to buy any more <laughs> books, but it's, you know, endorphins maybe, <laughs> endorphin hit by a book, but now it's more, okay, 
is this author reliable? Is mm-hmm. this author fallen to my conservative or whatever my bandwidth is on, mm-hmm. you know, egalitarian vis-a-vis, complementarian vis-a-vis, you know, literal six-day young earth, old earth, you know, that becomes the problem for me is I'm going, okay, I don't know this commentator or this series and yeah, I can get it with a right click, but is that accurate? So to me, it's mm-hmm. created a new level of, okay, stay with certain authors I know that are proven, mm-hmm. but then oh, I'm not learning and keeping up with new things. So it, it, it's almost created a, a backwash for me. Mm-hmm. And the way I use Bible software is because uh, who is this person? Where mm-hmm. do they come from? Oh, that's a Campbellite. Oh, that's a Catholic. Oh, that's a Episcopalian. Fine. But that's harder to navigate for me. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that, you know, that right-clicking feature, you know, that when you're using Bible software, you're usually able to click on the word and get some information out of it or about on the passage or something like that. And one interesting thing I found is I've asked a lot of people, you know, a couple hundred people at different churches, you know, how do you use all this stuff? And this range from people that, you know, use you version on their phone to someone that had really deep Bible software that does all the Greek and Hebrew and stuff. What I found an interesting thing is that a lot of these people that were using it would say, I love that I can get the answer. And I think you and I you know, believe that there is an answer, but we also know that sometimes the text of the Bible can be a little bit multifaceted. It could be a little hard to understand. And it seemed like there was this thought that if the Bible alone almost isn't enough, that what I really need is the right resources. Yeah. That if I have the right plugins and I purchase the right thing and I have the right app, then I can know for sure what the Bible says. And I thought it was interesting because part of what to be a Protestant has been is that we have this fancy big theology word called perspicuity, you know, where we believe that the Bible is something that we can know, that the average person can know the main stuff without needing necessarily right. a church or some type of authoritative interpretation. And this made it seem like, yeah, I can know the answer as long as I have the right app. Yeah. And I thought, man, that, that's, a, that's an interesting shift that you can kind of see. That's the type of formative power that I think technology can have as it shifts our expectations of what we think the text is and what we think we need to know it. Well, back when A.H. Strong uh, put numbers on Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic root stems, I've often wondered how many focus groups he had, or did he go through and check all those <laughs> by himself again and again and again? But if I understand uh, data, that was really the first way we started doing a lot of the processing for mm. these tools was mm. the Strong's numbers. Yeah. Am I wrong on that? Yeah. I mean, that's the easiest way. If you're trying to write some Bible software, finding a, a Bible text that has Strong's numbers, that's probably the easiest way to do anything. So he did a great job because, you know, Greek Greek and Hebrew use different letter systems yep. than we yep. have, and that just makes it a ton easier. And he got probably 99.9% right. Uh, it's crazy. Them, yeah, right? yeah. I'm yeah. still struck when the Strong's numbers show up on whatever it is, theological word book or whatever, <laughs> the Strong's number. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could think one other number is worth pointing out. This is left left turn a little bit. But when you first said numbers, I was thinking about probably the most powerful Bible technology that's ever been invented. It wasn't the scroll or the codex or the printing press or the phone. I think it was verse numbers because that that technology huh. that we added on top of it, yeah. I think changes everything about what we see and don't see about the text. So it's the original Twitter of the Bible, you know, yeah. turning it into 140 characters or 280 well, characters or whatever. That's fascinating you pointed out because Mo Proctor, for many, I've gone to his Camp Lagos and I'm a regular subscriber of his training. But he, he said years ago, he said, um, oh, he called it a versification. That's what it was. So when, yeah. when Lagos was building their iteration of their, he calls them data sets or data types just to explain it. And he'd say, think of the chapter titles of a book, the sub-chapter titles of a book, Mm -hmm. the body of a text. And he goes, how Logos works is, you know, it's a very 
robust program, but he said there are resources. He calls them non-versified, that there Mm. are no verses. And so how do you begin to search all that and then Mm. how you limit it? Because as a user, even with the greatest and latest technology, you can't deal with the search results. You know, Mm. even if you're really good with how you do your search, you know, refining it, it's still more information than a human can read. That's why I go back to my issue is, are they, uh, you know, conservative? Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the end of your book. You go to some, you call it the digital Bible in modern faith, your conclusions Mm. you're drawing Mm. based on your research. Help us out there a little bit and where we're going with all this, John. Yeah. Well, okay. That's a great question. You know, when we talk about these different technology shifts with the Bible, we talk about how there were scrolls and then, you know, the codex, the early handwritten books, and then the printing press. In each of those cases, we replaced what we had before. I think with the digital Bible, we're not going to replace print. I mean, we've seen this with paper books that people still like those. That we're looking at now is more of a multimedia environment that we have. um, We all probably, you know, sometimes look up on the Bible on our phone for a quick hit or when we don't have it. Um, We maybe get out our print Bible when we want to be a little more devotional. We get on our computer when we want to study. And I think one of the returns, uh, something that we see a lot of now is audiobooks. You know, we see people reading or listening to the Bible a lot more. And man, that is a powerful thing that we didn't have for a long time. That whole era of books, I think we lost that of just hearing scripture. And I think we're gaining that back. So there's always something that we're losing and something that we're getting back. So I think, you know, with anything with technology, I think it's always trying to just be aware of what's happening. And for example, a lot of people will just sort of as they're running out the door for church and the kids are screaming and all that kind of stuff, they don't go grab that printed Bible because "Ah, I've got it in my phone. That's probably okay in a lot of cases, but I think it's also important for us to go, if I really think that the print is going to be good for me in this this particular situation, you know, take that extra effort to go find that that print book, I think would be really important. And at the same time, you know, those of us who are developers, I think the, the role that we have is to just, again, think really carefully about what are we trying to get people to do? And I think the folks at Uversion and Lagos and Bible Gateway, they're all really thinking carefully about that and trying to think through what is it that um, what is it that will change a life and how do I encourage those types of behaviors? So I'm glad that both ends of it are starting to take those questions seriously now. You jumped across a couple of things that I'd like to unpack sure. a little more. You said the way we're using a phone versus a tablet versus mm-hmm. a desktop. That's very interesting. Expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I did, there's been some studies out there and then I also did some of my own and just, I gave people a little chart and I would say, here's a bunch of tasks you could do, like devotional reading, long reading, memorization, that kind of stuff. And then gave them a chart that just said, you know, do you use a computer? Do you use a tablet? Do you use a phone? Do you use print for for these different things? And just had them check it off. And it was interesting to see these little patterns that a lot of people would do, you know, when you said study, it was going to be more in that computer print direction. And when you said something more more like uh, devotional, they might say phone, you know, because it's it's available for them. But if you said long form reading, again, they'd go back to print, but they wouldn't use their desktop. And you ask about environments, you know, that, um, you know, where are you? So at work, people use their computers. They don't use their big printed Bible, you know, when they're at work. But then when they're... Um, you know, at home or with their kids, they want that print thing because they want their kids to see that physical thing with them and they want to imprint that. And so it does bring up this subject about how the printed Bible has this representative power. It's the reason why we still tell preachers, hey, use your iPad, but every once in a while, get that book and hold it up because it, it says something to people. 
you know, when you pull out a Bible in a Starbucks, it has a different feeling than pulling out your phone. So it sends Depending messages. Depending on which state you live in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's this old phrase of the medium is the message. It's one yeah, of those impacts yeah. of it, that, that the medium you're holding sends messages to everybody around you and yourself. In Middleton, see, open a Bible in a Starbucks, 15 people will say, I love that book. What are you reading? <laughs> if you did in Oregon, you might have a different response. But again, just a sidebar about about study and long form. Um, again, retention. Do you personally, uh, from your students and in your own spheres, do you see a, a better retention with more, let's say, a literal Bible and a pad and a typewriter word processor mm. than, say, the technology alone? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of, there's a number of studies out there about reading that people's comprehension is usually a little higher with print. And again, some of those specific things like their ability to order things. And we mostly saw that in the studies here. We, we found it um, affected men a little bit more. That was the part about gender we talked about earlier where men's comprehension dropped more significantly on a phone than women's did. And yet at the same time, when we had them do a daily reading plan, men were more likely to complete it on their phone too. And I don't know exactly what that means. There's all kinds of differences in the way that men and women use technology. This could be an issue of parenting and who's home and who's not and who's using their phone more. There's all kinds of backgrounds, things in there. But I think what's probably more interesting is the interpretive differences, not just the comprehension, but what they see in it. And that'd be fun to talk through. I uh, tease our church here at Stonebridge Bible Church where I say, open your Bible uh, or your cheater device. And uh, you know, I mock them regularly. In fact, I interviewed our worship pastor a couple of weeks ago for just a few minutes about you know, where we are in a culture of worship and songs and so forth. Mm. And it was a real sweet time. But he, he went to read a passage. He said, I don't have my Bible. And I, he pulled out his phone. I said, well, I have a Bible. You know, and it gave him great grief about it. And, of course, our congregation has a lot of fun with that. But I push it really hard with, you know, bring a physical text to church and bring a pen. I make a big deal about this is a thing called a ballpoint pen. You can buy them at the store. They're very inexpensive, you know, but it seems to me that I go back to that earlier comment. I asked you about the tactile nature, mm -hmm. neuroplasticity, what's happening in the brain. And again, I love the, if you could see my work area right now, I got technology everywhere. I love it. Mm -hmm. But I find personally, if I turn on the Bible software in the morning, my devotion never happens. Mm, That's my own yeah. ADHD or whatever you want to label it. <laughs> if I have my text and maybe a, my handbook to prayer and maybe a notepad, I do much better at staying on task. Are you able, if you use software to stay with it or do you get distracted? Yeah, there, I think there's some software apps that I use for regular reminders, like, you know, change out the air filters and the air conditioning or something like that. But, you know, day to day, I like writing down tasks because I, I really enjoy crossing them off, you know. Um, but I think, you know, the, the point you're making about, um, hey, put away your digital Bible and use your printed Bible. I just, as kind of a joking way of engaging that, wrote an article a while back that was called Stop Bringing Your Printed Bible to Church. And so the idea was, it was kind of reframing it as if this was the previous generation where someone's saying, hey, in the old days, nobody had a printed Bible for 1800 years of the church. And so you would come and you would listen and you would hear and you would take that into your mind and you wow. would memorize it and you'd think about it that week. Yeah. But once you have this printed Bible, you know, the, the printing press comes around, you know, 1500, but it's really not for a long time before they get cheap enough where everybody can buy them. And there's this big push in the 1900s. So this idea that you would have your own printed Bible and you'd have your own quiet time and your own study time, that's a brand new idea, right? And that, that hearing what you heard in community and then meditating on that all week, that was the way that you were a Christian or 
a Jew prior to that. And so I think there is a funny thing in that the, the printed Bible is now this assumption for us. And I think it's a great one, but it is worth going back and saying, what would I do without that? And what do I really want to become as a person? What type of Christian do I want to be? And there are those moments where we do want to let it be, let it come into our hearts and not just be in front of our eyes. So toward the end of your book, you have a comment about the digital Bible and modern faith. And you talk about writing your PhD dissertation uh, and, and how one of your examiners in your defense had some interaction with you about this. Well, I think th- there is a, a place for us to be prescriptive. Here's what you should do with this. But in this project, it's really more of me stepping back and saying, what, what's happening here? And what are all the other factors behind it than just reading? And so part of what I want to do is understand even evangelicalism a little bit, because if, if evangelicals are the ones who are developing all this stuff, what are the characteristics of evangelicals? Because we know what we believe theologically, but there's also these behavioral characteristics among evangelicals. And that's really what I wanted to explore in this, is be thinking through what it was it that drove me to make Bible software, and why did the folks at Bible Gateway and Uversion do that? And what are some benefits to those traits and what are some downsides? So what I what I talk about in this is orientation called hopeful entrepreneurial pragmatism. So this big three-word thing. So hopeful is sort of this idea that most of us evangelicals, we tend to have a, a little bit more positive view of technology. Like we know there's bad stuff, but we're going to use the good parts of it. And sometimes that's a little naive, but most of the time it's just for good. And the entrepreneurial, we're all people who are used to experimenting and trying new things. So when uh, people came over to the Americas, we didn't have a church state thing to fund churches. So you just had to experiment. We had to figure it out. And that's really built into the DNA of American religion. And the pragmatism is the other interesting part, is that most of us, what we do is we say, well, did it work? Did this ministry plan work? And that's how we judge it. It's not always whether or not it's right or wrong. It's just, did it work? Now, sometimes that's great because it helps us to sort of lower our specific theological things to work with people who are maybe a little bit different from us on peripheral issues, because we really want the gospel to go out. But on the other hand, sometimes this can be negative for us because we're concerned with the end goal and we partner with people maybe we shouldn't. We see this a lot with probably American politics is a use case where it's not always been helpful for evangelicals. But when it comes to technology stuff, it can be really helpful. So what a lot of this book is doing is describing what's happening and not as much trying to tell you what to do. You think in a world that I don't even visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because you're, you're looking at the, the back door to how this information is aggregated, I would be a small anomaly of the way I use it. Other mm-hmm. people use it differently. But when you think about screen, the Bible, the way it's affected us, uh, two or three concluding thoughts from Dr. Dyer on what we need to be careful of and just thinking critically about how we use technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll stop with just a, one more of those study parts where I would have groups of people read Jude and ask them what they think. And the print readers saw a God who was judgmental, and the phone readers saw a God who was faithful. But the print reader said that that God who was judgmental, that he actually encouraged them. And the phone readers who saw a faithful God, that actually discouraged them. And I think what's happening Whoa. there is that, you know, when we when we have a, a printed Bible, it, it feels like something that's solid to us. We, we think about it as, this is God's word. But with our phone, we associate a lot of anxieties with it. You know, when we turn on social media, most of the verses are kind of just happy verses. We don't usually have judgmental verses on them. So what we see on screen is a happy God. But our phones are sometimes the things that make us sad. We see a lot of things. We feel anxious about it. So 
the God of the screen is one who is, who is nice but makes you sad. And the printed God is probably a little bit more complicated. Now, that's not me saying don't use your phone. It's just me saying be aware of it. Be thinking about the ways in which it's shaping you. Be thinking about where you put it at night and where it is when you wake up because that's gonna form the rest of your day and the kind of person that you become. If you need to make a, a few little modifications, you're not gonna get rid of it, but maybe you can um, you know, put the ice cream away and put your running shoes out. Dr. John Dyer, author of two books we're talking about in general broad strokes today, From the Garden to the City, and then his newest book, People of the Screen. Uh, show notes will give you information on how to purchase these. Let me ask you one final question. Who would you like? Who would you say, okay, I, I really wish this person or these people would read people of the screen? I think anybody working in technology and something of technology and faith, I would love that. And then someone that's really trying to think about also what it means to be an evangelical in today's world. Um, I think that that question is underneath all the time. And so if you're interested in where evangelicalism has been and where it's going, this is a fun lens to, to look at that through. Interesting you bring that last point up. I was in a it was supposed to be a conversation kind of turned into a debate a while back on a, a YouTube program. And one guy was a Greek Orthodox guy and the other guy was Catholic and I was the token Protestant. And it was <laughs> fascinating, you know, this portrayal of the rugged individualist that doesn't need the church was mm. what was, you know, they were portraying me as the Protestant. Mm. And I thought, well, I guess, you know, you could argue that, but everything, you know, from those two traditions was the church was the authority. Mm -hmm. Just your comment about understanding, you know, who we are as evangelicals, what that means, I think is really, uh, it's a chilling thought, John. We've come mm -hmm. to the place where we have to ask ourselves, I mean, in, in recent months, years, evangelicals become a bad word in mm -hmm. most publications. I mean, if you're CT or whatever, we're kind of the, you know, the old evangelicals and the aligned with Trump or whatever. There's a lot of distancing from that evangelical Protestant nomenclature, at least it seems in my worldview. Yeah. I mean, I think evangelicals have had a historical set of beliefs, but also a set of behaviors. And some of those are more positive and seem like they're aligned with the gospel. And some of them maybe aren't. And it's worth us interrogating that a little bit so that we can, I think, honor and glorify God more completely. Dr. John Dyer, gracious man that he is. Find out more in our show notes about him. And thanks again so much for coming on the broadcast, brother. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.